Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Marshall Goldsmith is a New York Times number one best-selling author. He's written or edited 47 books, which have sold over 3 million copies, been translated into 32 languages, and become listed bestsellers in 12 countries. Amazon recently recognized the 100 best leadership and success books ever written and included Marshall's Triggers and What Got You Here Won't Get You There on that list. Marshall is the only living author with two books on that list. He is a member of the Thinkers 50 Hall of Fame. He is the only two-time Thinkers 50 number one leadership thinker in the world. He has been ranked as the world's number one executive coach and top 10 business thinker for eight years. And he was chosen as the inaugural winner of the Lifetime Award for Leadership by the Harvard Institute of Coaching. Marshall served as a professor of management practice at the Dartmouth-Tuck School of Business, his PhD from UCLA Anderson School of Management, where he was the Distinguished Alumnus of the Year, and his MBA is from Indiana University's Kelly School of Business, where he was the Distinguished Entrepreneur of the Year. He is one of a select few coaches who has worked with over 200 major CEOs and their management teams. He served on the advisory board of the Peter Drucker Foundation for 10 years and has been a volunteer teacher for the U.S. Army generals, Navy admirals, Girl Scout executives, and leaders in the International and American Red Cross, where he was a national volunteer of the year. In this episode, he shares with us how to coach people to start focusing on the long-term strategic goal rather than the near-term tactical ambitions, why doing good work is not enough, and what you need to do to get credit for the good work that you actually do, and what he's learned after decades of being one of the most sought-after coaches in the world, what he has learned about what matters most and what we should all be focusing on now. Ladies and gentlemen. Marshall Goldsmith. Marshall, thank you so much for being here with us and taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, it's been many years. I've been following your work. I know many followers of your work. And you and I got to meet close to 10 years ago in Paraguay. We had dinner together and we were doing an event together. Anyway, it's great to see you, although you and I can see each other. People listening to us can't see us. Ah, well, it's great to talk with you. Lovely. So I asked this question of everyone just to kind of get us to know you a little bit personally. If you could complete this sentence for me. If you really know me, you know that. You know that I have on American Airlines 11 million frequent flyer miles <laughs> and that I've also hitchhiked over 10,000 miles. Hitchhiked? Tell us about hitchhiking. I don't know about this. Well, in 1969, lovingly referred to as the summer of love, I spent months out on the road just hitchhiking. You know, I've slept in the side of the road, slept under the bridge, slept in laundromats. 
always lived the yuppie life. I love it. I love it. Yeah. My father hitchhiked a lot in Germany as well. It's where he grew up and he would just hitchhike around Europe. So this is a topic of strategy or that's the central topic of the podcast. And your work certainly touches on strategy, but I know it's much broader than that. But if we could zoom into strategy, what is your definition of strategy? Strategy is your roadmap to achieve the organization's vision. Your roadmap to achieve the organization's vision. Excellent. Can you break that down a little bit for us? Or what does roadmap mean and how is vision created? It's hard to figure out how we're going to get there if there isn't a there. So the first strategy, you need some sort of there. Where are we going? You have to have a there. And then the strategy to me is the broader roadmap. It's not going to tell every detail about how to get there, but it's the broad outlines of to do this, we're going to need two. Got it. This is a question that just came to mind for me that we didn't plan for here, which is you coach so many leaders, individuals, teams. What is the trick to aligning on or creating whatever you call it, a vision? You know, I coach so many people. I'm actually not the world's expert on how to create the vision. So I'll pass on that. Okay. I have one good thing from one of my good coaching clients, Alan Mulally. If I'm not the world's expert on a topic, don't answer. Okay, good, 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 good. Great. Great. So you engage with people, they have a vision, and the question is, what are the barriers or whatever that they need to unfold? If they have the wrong vision, I'm probably very skilled at helping them get to the wrong place faster. (laughs) Well, I'm so excited to get into your most recent book, The Earned Life. Before we go there, however, I'd just like to touch a little bit on what you are most well-known for. What would you say? I mean, I have in mind two books that I know of yours, and you've written- So now 51. 51. I was going to say over 40 books, so you're at 50. Wow. Times bestsellers, three other bestsellers, and 44 purchased only by my mother, my father, and <laughs> Love it. That's great. It's good to have a big family then. Which books have most resonated so far? Depends how you define it. The book that's sold most, which I'll never sell that many again, is What Got You Here Won't Get You There. That book is, I don't know, a million and a half, two million copies around the world. So you don't get many of those in a lifetime. It was kind of, I hit the mother load on that. So that was wonderful. My new book, The Earned Life, though, is my most critically acclaimed book. Great feedback. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it's an outstanding book. Tell us a little bit about it. What motivated you to write this book? Well, my friend Mark Thompson and I, over COVID, spent 600 hours working with 60 amazing people every weekend. We'd spend hours, they'd rotate each one in different groups, and they talked about their lives. And it's not a secret who they were. One of them was Curtis Martin, National Football League Hall of Fame, Pau great basketball star, Telly Young, Broadway star. We had Jim Kim, the president of World Bank. We had president of the Olympic Committee, we had head of Russell Investments, CEO of Cardinal Health, the Rockefeller Foundation, on and on and on. And every weekend, they talk about life. Here's what's going good. Here's what's not. And please help me. And then we did it over and over. And we did it six months. We thought, well, maybe, you know, a little social pressure to keep doing it. We'll take a break. And that way they can, you know, tactfully quit. Nobody quit. Fascinating. So let's get a little bit into some of the insights that you gleaned and you shared out of that experience in the book. You talk about every breath is a new me as a paradigm. What does that mean? The book is basically a Buddhist book. I'm not a religious Buddhist, but I'm a philosophical Buddhist. Buddha philosophy is a philosophy of impermanence. And every breath is a new me means pretty much literally what it says. Every time I take a breath, it's a new me. And as we go through life, we're constantly in a process of reincarnating. We're constantly reinventing ourselves. It's a very healthy way to look at life. So you don't get bogged down in the past. You're sitting there saying, it's a new me. It's a new me. Always starting over as we go through life. And it's a great way to get rid of guilt. So for example, I 
people close your eyes and every time you take a breath and it's a new me, think of the infinite set of previous years. Think of the nice things they've given to you that's here and how hard they tried. And if anybody did that many good things, what should you say to those people? Just say thank you. Now, did they make mistakes? Let it go. Let it go. One story in the book people love is, and it actually is a story about my friend that He's going home with his wife after a little reunion with the kids and grandkids and stuff. And he's talking about how wonderful it was. The kids all did so well. And then she starts in on, well, 10 years ago, you did this and you did this. And we're better if you'd done this and this. And he basically says to her, that is true. But that guy's on the car right now. Now, that guy made some mistakes. He did some good things and bad things. I'm a different person than that person. I worked very hard to be a different person. And his wife said, you're right. Thank you. Yeah, why am I dredging up some 10-year-old you that's not here in the car right now? Yeah, and how I see that relating to traditional corporate strategy is that I think corporations do have an organizational clinging, to use a Buddhist term, to past commitments, past activities, right? There's a tendency to want to keep doing what we've done. But if you can come new, I think of the Miyamoto Musashi was a Japanese samurai that wrote a book called The Book of Five Rings, and he had this term coming new. So you come to the battle as if you just got there. And so that's kind of what I'm hearing and what you're saying here. Yeah, and exactly. You don't get into that's the way we've always done it. Yeah, yep. So how do you, I mean, this is such a huge opportunity for us to be able to talk to you who have coached people, many, many people through stepping out of, to use a Buddhist frame as well, their perceived permanent self towards, hey, I just got here, coming anew. How do you coach someone through that? Because I'm thinking a strategy officer is probably talking to a CEO and trying to get the CEO to make that shift. How do you coach someone? Well, a couple of points. The first one you've already touched on, and that is don't get into, this is just who I am. This is the way I am. See, as long as anybody says that's just the way I am, guess what? They're probably right. That is the way they will continue to be. And it really inhibits change. Unless you have an incurable genetic defect, you can change. And when the CEO says, that's just the way I am, even if I help them change their behavior, I need to help understand their identity because if I don't, they're going to feel like a phony. If I don't help you understand your identity, you'll feel inauthentic, like a phony. Well, that's not the real me. So I really encourage people to get out of that. That's just the way I am mindset. And if you want the company not to think that way, the CEO is a role model of not thinking that way himself or herself. So if you're sitting with a CEO and you recognize that they are thinking that way, that's the way I am, as opposed to maybe that's the way I am being, are there any kind of go-to phrases or arguments or logic or approaches that you take? Well, practice with you. Give me one thing in your life that's kind of dysfunctional and you've always said, well, that's just the way I am. Um, I'm not super organized. I would say that's the way I am. Let's just say disorganized. Okay, disorganized, yes. Now, let's say disorganized. Let's assume you want to get more organized. Okay. Just for the sake of yep. point. Okay. Yep, yep, Ready? yep. Organized. Raise your right hand. Got it raised. Repeat after me. Okay. I do not have an incurable genetic defect. I do not have an incurable genetic defect. In the past, I've been disorganized. In the past, I've been disorganized. There's no reason for me to continue this unless I choose to. There's no reason for me to continue this unless I choose to. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Oh, wow. I felt that. I really felt like me stepping out of this perception of who I am as a permanent thing. Um, and that was super simple. Wow. If you think about it, there's no gene that's making you disorganized. You know, some genetic defect. Yet we talk about ourselves as if we have these genetic predispositions that are unchangeable. Now, some are. I can't make a short person tall or anything like that. On the other hand, assuming your issue is not a truly a genetic issue, any behavioral issue, you can change. I love it. Well, I want to dig in further there, but there's so many things I want to talk about in the time that we have with you. You say something in the book like credibility has to be earned twice. What do you mean by that? This one is a great one for your strategy people. Because 
applies both individually and collectively. This applies at every level from the human being to the team to the organization. Now, what does that mean? Well, I've got to ramble a little bit to cover the points, but I had the privilege of spending 50 days with Peter Drucker. I was on his advisory board for 10 years. I mean, many lessons. I got ranked number one leadership thinker in the world. My life compared to him is that of a 10-year-old. This guy was really a smart guy. One of the things he said is our mission in life is to make a positive difference, not to prove we're smart, not to prove we're right. Well, most people forget about that. They're lost in being smart and right, and we forget nobody cares. We're just here to make a positive difference. Number two, he said, every decision in life is made by the person who has the power to make the decision. Make peace with that. Most CEOs get this, or many humans don't get it. Decisions are made based on one variable, power. Whoever has the power to make the decision makes the decision. That's it. The smart a fair person, a good person, the right person. Decisions are made based on who makes the decision. If I need to influence you and you have the power to make the decision, there's one word to describe you, that word's customer. One word to describe me, that word is salesperson. Customers are five salespeople have to sell. Sell what you can sell, you change what you can change, and you can sell it, you can sell it, you can change it, you change it, you can't start over. Strategy people, if you're the CEO and I'm the strategy person, me having the right answer doesn't matter. You're the decision maker. And me sitting there saying, well, he's stupid, doesn't help anything. I'm here to positive difference and me being right is irrelevant. I don't need to be right. I need to make a positive difference in this organization. And if I'm the strategy officer, I'm a salesperson. I got to sell because you can't sell and customers don't have to buy. The other buy, you got to sell. The most strategy officers, they know how to sell. Now, credibility must burn twice applies at the micro and the macro. Let me talk about the micro and then the macro. The micro is actually, it's really fun. At the micro level, I basically wrote a book called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And that book is largely about people who oversell. They try to prove themselves too much. In my model on credibility, I talk about two dimensions. One dimension is called proving myself, and the other dimension is making a positive difference. And what happens in life, for many of the people I've coached, which led to my book, What Got You Here, Won't Get You There, they try to win all the time. They have to prove they're right, win all the time, whatever. And because winners like to win, they just get used to winning and proving they're right, and they oversell. They oversell. I say, don't try to win. Don't prove you're right. Let them win. Quit winning all the time. I wrote a book called How Women Rise with Sally Helgeson. Incredibly popular book. The most popular book in the U.S. in the last five years for women. No negative feedback from left wing or right wing, which I was so proud of. It was 80% her and 20% me. That's okay. It's a good book. Now, in that book, we talk about the opposite. Many people, and she points out more women than men, tend to undersell promote themselves enough. And as I've done these webinars and stuff, people often have chat boxes. I ask, do you tend to oversell or undersell? Do you try to prove yourself too much or not prove yourself enough? And the answer for most people is they don't try to prove themselves enough. They undersell. Oversells, what I always say is, before you try to make a point, breathe, and ask yourself a question. Is me proving this point going to make the world a better place? Well, if the answer is no, shut up. Why are you saying I ask three questions. Question one, if you became more powerful and influential, would the world be better off or worse off? I invariably say, better off. Two, does trying to become more powerful and influential make you feel uncomfortable? They invariably say, yes. Question three, what is more important to you, making the world a better place or being comfortable? You repeat that one more time? Sorry, that really hit me. <laughs> What's more important, making the world a better place? If you want to be comfortable, then be comfortable. Wow. You want well, a better place to get over yourself. Get out there and learn how to sell. Mm. And it's a great point for undersellers. Sometimes the problem is people get too arrogant and they undersell. Most of the time, people lack confidence and undersell, but sometimes the opposite is true. Have you ever heard this? My good work should speak for itself. Have you ever heard that before? Yes, yes. My good work should speak for itself. Yes. I shouldn't have to sell it. I've done great work and it should be evident, right? I've built the perfect mousetrap and people should understand that this is a great mousetrap. Your good work is not going to speak for itself. Strategy officers, your good work strategy officer will not speak for itself. No one for 
works speak for itself. You got to sell. If your good work would speak for itself, the company wouldn't need a marketing function. Now, part of that could be I'm insecure, but part of it could be I'm arrogant. I have some strategy officers who were arrogant because they had the right answer. Somebody would give a shit. Let's say you have the right answer, but nobody executes on it. It's a useless answer. It's a useless answer. So, Robert Jolie, my good friend, was CEO of Best Buy. did a spectacular job. Fantastic CEO. And when he left, he's going to write a book, which he did called Heart of Business. I said, Robert, let me talk to you. You want to write this book? You're a book salesman. Get over your ego and don't sit there like a typical CEO and say, I shouldn't have to sell things. If you wrote the book, obviously you want to sell copies. Get out there and sell. And he has. And he's done a great job. And I'm so proud of him because he was selling because he believed in the product. He wasn't so arrogant that said, well, you know, I'm a bear Jolie and I'm a big deal and everybody's going to buy this book because it's great. Wrong. Right. So let me ask you, I don't know if this fits the model here, but I'm thinking at one extreme there is, I've got the right answer and you should just understand the answer. At the other extreme is, I don't have the answer, but let me tell you what you want to hear, right? In the middle, you've got something like, I've got the right answer. I believe in this answer. Let me convince you why this is the right answer because I believe it's the right answer. Another one is, you know, the best answer that you won't buy into. When I was in consulting many years ago, you know, we'd always do this checklist at the end of a study. Will leadership buy into this? And if leadership won't buy into it and won't execute it, maybe we reduce the recommendation to something. So there's a kind of compromise. What's your reaction? I like it. What I like about it is very practical and very real. It's not abstract. You're not focused on prove you're right. You're focused on make a difference. I mean, the question is, what are you there for? If you're there to prove you're right, prove you're right. If you're there to make a difference, make a difference. Proving I did not make it a difference. I would say for most cases, it's a waste of time, especially the strategy offer inside the company. See, if you're an author or something, well, maybe you're a college professor. You can just prove you're right and everybody's fine. You don't make a difference. Well, then you still feel good. On the other hand, if you're a strategy offer who is paid by the corporation, you are there to make a positive difference. Shareholders writing the check, salary, and they're not writing the check for you to do an abstract study. My little business years ago was called Kilty, Goldsmith, and Boone. And we hired this ex-McKinsey guy, which is probably a disaster for most small businesses anyway. <laughs> I'm ex-McKinsey as well. Well, I mean, we paid him. That's right. <laughs> he didn't sell anything. Yeah. Yeah. He came up with nothing that sold anything. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So you know, my partner, Joe, wants to get rid of it. So he calls him in. And Joe is conflict averse. So he blah, blah, blah. Well, you know. I said, <laughs> don't get to the punchline. I said, Scott, let me just be clear. You're fired. And Scott says, well, I don't think you understand. I MBA from Harvard, ex-McKinsey guy. And fire me. Joe, Joe says, what? He used to get fired. But Joe looked at the guy and says, the name of our business is called Kilty Goldsmith and Company. He said, my name is Kilty. His name is Goldsmith. And your name is not company. <laughs> <laughs> In a small business, you can't have somebody coming up with theoretical crap. It's being paid for out of my wallet, by the way. I am paying for this myself. It's not coming out of the sky. There's no stockholders here. He and I, we're writing the checks. Yeah, yeah. You can't do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. I mean, a solution that isn't adopted. I think Steve Jobs said, innovation is creativity that ships. The difference between innovation and creativity is like creativity is having an idea. For it to be innovation is it has to be adopted. It has to be sold. It has to have impact. Steve Jobs is a great case study. My good buddy is Safi Bacall. Have you ever met Safi? Oh, yes. Yes. I love him. I love him. He wrote yep. a book called Luke. And he makes a great point. Yeah, you have artists and soldiers. Jobs is kind of an artist and he used to deify artists and shit on soldiers. What happened? They didn't make money. And he finally brings Jim Cook, who's a soldier, and they start making a lot of money because, you know, somebody's got to make the trains run and they're not all artists. And Safi's point, which I love, is you need both. Now, speaking of Safi, Safi is in my group. And one of the things I talk about in the group is you never place your values as a human being based on results. The individual shouldn't do this. The corporation should do this for a variety of reasons. One, you don't control 
results. There are a million variables impacting results, many outside your control. And two, what happens after you achieve the results? What happens then? How long are you going to be happy? A week, a day? Not much, right? So what happens is Albert Berla is one of the guys that wrote an endorsement there for me. Albert was CEO of Pfizer. So I said, Albert, you know, how's it going? Oh, how was last year? Oh, it was good. Yes, you must go last year. Yeah, cure for COVID. Oh, good. You know, and then we have employee engagements, all time high, pride in the company's high, stock price high, new book, CEO of the year, blah, blah, blah. I said, you know, it's great. Then what's your problem? He said, I have a huge problem next year. If Albert's found human being is he has to top last year, he's never going to top last year. He'll never do it again. Nobody wants him to top last year. You don't want him to do that again. You know, Michael Phelps won 25 gold medals. Think about doing after winning the 25th medal, killing himself. You know what? Couldn't achieve more. Now, something's in my group. And Curtis Martin's in the group. Now, Curtis Martin, NFL Hall of Fame, number five rusher in history. And unlike many football players, is happy, really well achieved happy, helping people, having a great life. And then Safi learned something from Curtis. And Safi, as you know, is a scientist, so he talks like a scientist. He said, you know what I learned? I used to think that happiness was a dependent variable based on achievement. And what I learned is achievement and happiness are independent variables. Independent. Uh-huh. He said, I used to think if I achieved more, I would be happy. Mm. Those are independent variables. You can achieve a lot and be happy, and you can achieve a lot and be miserable. You can achieve nothing and be happy, and you achieve nothing and be miserable. They're independent variables. And I said to Safi, great realization. Safi, you already have a PhD in physics from Stanford. You started four companies. You've made tens of millions of dollars. And you've written a New York Times bestselling book and consulted the presidents. Now, that's not enough achievement to make you happy, except. Which do you have to have? Already a 99.999 on achievement now. You know that 99.999 is going to make him happy? Not really. <laughs> you know, it's just a great point in the book. So in the book, I talk about three things. One, we need higher aspiration. That's why am I doing this? And every company needs higher aspirations too. Well, what's the point of all this? Second is our ambitions need to connect to our aspirations. Now, our aspirations don't have a finish line or a target. They're the answer to the question, why? On the other hand, our ambitions have a goal, a certain sub-point, and you focus on that. And then our actions are what we do every day. Now, in the history of the human species, most people have been focused on the action phase. Our ancestors were poor. They didn't have time for lofty goals. They just lived day to day. And most people today still are focused there. Most humans live just in day-to-day life. They show up. They get their job done. They do what they call. They play video games, whatever. Like professors, maybe, or ministers, they live in their head. They live way up in the sky. They come up with lofty ideas. They don't really achieve much of anything. Energy people, unfortunately, are kind of a little bit of that. The people listening to us, though, and everyone I coach, and I'd say the huge majority of people listening to you right now, their problem is the ambition achievement phase. They're achievaholics. They get so focused on achievement that they can forget a few things. One, why am I doing this? Why am I trying to achieve all this stuff? And then number two, they can forget to enjoy life fixated on achievement, they forget to enjoy life. There's some great research about marshmallows. I love this part of the book. Okay, okay. And the research is you take these kids, you give a kid a marshmallow, say, kid, you eat one marshmallow, you get one. Kid, if you wait, oh, two. Originally, they've done this longitudinal study that shows the kids that eat one all become drug addicts, the kids that wait all get PhDs from Stanford. So uh-huh. like the it is, delayed gratification is good. Right. How many self-help books say that? They all do. Delayed gratification good i'm going to teach you how to delay gratification you will achieve more yes eat less exercise more the problem with the research they didn't take the kid that had two marshmallows to say wait let's wait a little more kid Whoa, wait some more four five ten hundred a thousand or end an old man sitting in a room waiting to die surrounded by thousands of uneaten marshmallows oof oof yes sometimes you gotta eat the marshmallows 
Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, I didn't know that's where you're going to go. Wow, that's brilliant. Now, I love this story of Jack Welch. Jack Welch has triple bypass surgery. He almost dies. My friend asked him, Jack, what'd you learn about life when you thought you might die? You know, he said, why am I drinking the damn cheap wine every night? <laughs> <laughs> incredible wine collection, but all these fancy wines, right? And he loves wine. Right. He's saving them. Cheap wine. You know, he's, <laughs> he was waiting for the other wine to appreciate and value. <laughs> I'm Jack Wells. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm worth hundreds of millions of dollars. He can afford Stupid a wine. nice glass of wine. Value. That is insane. One commitment, no more cheap wine. Classy. I love it. I love it. <laughs> oh my gosh. So I have so many more questions for you, but I know that we're reaching the top of our time with you. And so I think what I'd love to come to is how can people connect with you, learn from you, follow you? Because we've just kind of scratched the surface of one of 51 books that you've written. We want people to be able to learn from you. So what's the best way for people to engage with you? I'll share with you. Yeah. I've seen this model before. It's called the reverse franchise model. Okay. The franchise model is you do exactly what I say or else I'll sue you. Okay. Or else, if you don't give me money, I will sue you. My is a little bit different. Okay. Everything I know for free, and they can use it any way they want. You can put your name on it, modify it, change it, do whatever you want with it. And two, it's all free. It's all free. So I have a website, www.marshallgoldsmith.com. You go to my, I've got 1.4 something million followers on LinkedIn. Go to LinkedIn, go to my website, and I give everything away. Proud of so many people use my stuff all the time around. And that makes me feel good. One of the women in our group is called Nankande, and she's using it to teach high potential leaders in Africa. I'm not going to do that. But I feel like when she does it, if it helps them in a little bit, I help them too. And Sally and I did this book, How Women Rise. That's mostly her. I'm not an expert on women's issues. She is. But it helps a lot of women. And I'm like, well, I helped a little bit. So therefore, indirectly, I'm kind of helping women. Like this call. Maybe somebody has a little better life. So if I've grown older, I'm simpler and simpler. I just want to help people have a little better life. When I coach people, I say, look, my goal is help you have a little better life. And maybe you help the people around you have a little better life. You might like to learn this. 100% of people I've called, I ask them a question. I coach. I said, is that okay? You might be surprised to learn 100% so far. I said, you know what? That's a good plan. Let's <laughs> <laughs> just do that. Love it. Love it. Wow. Well, thank you for all the work that you do and for sharing with us and being so generous to make it available to all of us and for sharing some of that here with us, Marshall. It has really been awesome having you on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for inviting Thank you. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers. Thinkers.